With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 13 of The Great Shadow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Great Shadow by Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 13 The End of the Storm Of all the things that seem strange in that battle, now that I look back upon it, there is nothing that was queerer than the way in which it acted on my comrades, for some took it as though it had been their daily meat without question or change, and others pattered out prayers from the first gunfire to the last, and others again cursed and swore in a way that was creepy to listen to. There was one, my own left-hand man, Mike Threadingham, who kept telling about his maiden aunt Sarah, and how she had left the money which had been promised to him to a home for the children of drowned sailors. Again and again he told me this story, and yet when the battle was over he took his oath that he had never opened his lips all day. As to me, I cannot say whether I spoke or not, but I know that my mind and my memory were clearer than I can ever remember them, and I was thinking all the time about the old folk at home, and about Cousin Edie with her saucy dancing eyes, and de Lissac with his cat's whiskers, and all the doings at West Inch, which had ended by bringing us here on the plains of Belgium as a cockshot for two hundred and fifty cannons. During all this time the roaring of those guns had been something dreadful to listen to, but now they suddenly died away, though it was like the lull in a thunderstorm when one feels that a worse crash is coming hard at the fringe of it. There was still a mighty noise on the distant wing where the Prussians were pushing their way onwards, but that was two miles away. The other batteries, both French and English, were silent, and the smoke cleared so that the armies could see a little of each other. It was a dreary sight along our ridge, for there seemed to be just a few scattered knots of red and the lines of green where the German legions stood, while the masses of the French appeared to be as thick as ever, though of course we knew that they must have lost many thousands in these attacks. We heard a great cheering and shouting from among them, and then suddenly all their batteries opened together with a roar which made the din of the earlier part seem nothing in comparison. It might well be twice as loud, for every battery was twice as near, being moved right up to point-blank range, with huge masses of horse between and behind them, to guard them from attack. When that devil's roar burst upon our ears, there was not a man down to the drummer-boys who did not understand what it meant. It was Napoleon's last great effort to crush us. There were but two more hours of light, and if we could hold our own for those, all would be well. 
Starved and weary and spent, we prayed that we might have strength to load and stab and fire while one of us stood upon his feet. His cannon could do us no great harm now, for we were on our faces, and in an instant we could turn into a huddle of bayonets if his horse came down again. But behind the thunder of the guns there rose a sharper, shriller noise, whirring and rattling, the wildest, jauntiest, most stirring kind of sound. "'It's the pas de charge,' cried an officer. "'They mean business this time.' and as he spoke we saw a strange thing. A Frenchman, dressed as an officer of hussars, came galloping towards us on a little bay horse. He was screeching, Vive le roi, vive le roi, at the pitch of his lungs, which was as much as to say that he was a deserter, since we were for the king and they for the emperor. As he passed us he roared out in English, The guard is coming, the guard is coming, and so vanished away to the rear like a leaf blown before a storm. At the same instant, up there rode an aide-de-camp with the reddest face that I ever saw upon mortal man. "'You must stop em or we are done,' he cried to General Adams, so that all our company could hear him. "'How is it going?' asked the general. Two weak squadrons left out of six regiments of heavies,' said he, and began to laugh like a man whose nerves are overstrung. "'Perhaps you would care to join in our advance?' "'Pray consider yourself quite one of us,' said the general, bowing and smiling as if he were asking him to a dish of tea. "'I shall have much pleasure,' said the other, taking off his hat, and a moment afterwards our three regiments closed up, and the brigade advanced in four lines over the hollow where we had lain in square, and out beyond to the point whence we had seen the French army. There was little of it to be seen now, only the red belching of the guns flashing quickly out of the cloud-bank, and the black figures, stooping, straining, mopping, sponging, working like devils and at devilish work. But through the cloud that rattle and whir rose ever louder and louder, with a deep-mouthed shouting and the stamping of thousands of feet. Then there came a broad black blur through the haze, which darkened and hardened until we could see that it was a hundred men abreast, marching swiftly towards us, with high fur hats upon their heads and a gleam of brasswork over their brows. And behind that hundred came another hundred, and behind that another, and on and on, coiling and writhing out of the cannon smoke like a monstrous snake, until there seemed to be no end to the mighty column. In front ran a spray of skirmishers, and behind them the drummers, and up they all came together at a kind of tripping step, with the officers clustering thickly at the sides and waving their swords and cheering. There were a dozen mounted men, too, at their front, all shouting together, and one with his hat held aloft upon his sword-point. I say again that no man upon this earth could have fought more manfully than the French did upon that day. It was wonderful to see them, for as they came onwards they got ahead of their own guns, so that they no longer had any help from them, while they got in front of the two batteries which had been on either side of us all day. Every gun had their range to a foot, and we saw long red lines scored right down the dark column as it advanced. So near were they, and so closely did they march, that every shot ploughed through ten files of them, and yet they closed up and came on with a swing and a dash that was fine to see. Their head was turned straight for ourselves, while the ninety-fifth overlapped them on one side and the fifty-second on the other. 
I shall always think that if we had waited so the guard would have broken us, for how could a four-deep line stand against such a column? But at that moment Colburn, the colonel of the 52nd, swung his right flank round so as to bring it on the side of the column which brought the Frenchmen to a halt. Their front line was forty paces from us at the moment, and we had a good look at them. It was funny to me to remember that I had always thought of Frenchmen as small men, for there was not one of that first company who could not have picked me up as if I had been a child, and their great hats made them look taller yet. They were hard, wizened, wiry fellows, too, with fierce puckered eyes and bristling moustaches, old soldiers who had fought and fought week in, week out for many a year and then as i stood with my finger upon the trigger waiting for the word to fire my eye fell upon the mounted officer with his hat upon his sword and i saw that it was de lissac i saw it and jim did too i heard a shout and saw him rush forward madly at the french column and as quick as thought the whole brigade took their cue from him officers and all and flung themselves upon the guard in front while our comrades charged them on the flanks we had been waiting for the order, and they all thought now that it had been given, but you may take my word for it that Jim Horscroft was the real leader of the brigade when we charged the old guard. God knows what happened during that mad five minutes. I remember putting my musket against a blue coat and pulling the trigger, and that the man could not fall because he was so wedged in the crowd. But I saw a horrid blotch upon the cloth, and a thin curl of smoke from it as if it had taken fire. Then I found myself thrown up against two big Frenchmen, and so squeezed together the three of us that we could not raise a weapon. One of them, a fellow with a very large nose, got his hand up to my throat, and I felt that I was a chicken in his grasp. "'Rendez-vous, coquin, rendez-vous,' said he, and then suddenly doubled up with a scream, for someone had stabbed him in the bowels with a bayonet." There was very little firing after the first sputter, but there was the crash of butt against barrel, the short cries of stricken men, and the roaring of the officers. And then suddenly they began to give ground, slowly, sullenly, step by step, but still to give ground. Ah, it was worth all that we had gone through, the thrill of that moment, when we felt that they were going to break. There was one Frenchman before me, a sharp-faced, dark-eyed man, who was loading and firing as quietly as if he were at practice, dwelling upon his aim, and looking round first to try to pick off an officer. I remember that it struck me that to kill so cool a man as that would be a good service, and I rushed at him and drove my bayonet into him. He turned as I struck him and fired full into my face, and the bullet left a wheel across my cheek that will mark me to my dying day. I tripped over him as he fell, and, two others tumbling over me, I was half smothered in the heap. When at last I struggled out and cleared my eyes, which were half full of powder, I saw that the column had fairly broken, and was shredding into groups of men who were either running for their lives or were fighting back to back in a vain attempt to check the brigade, which was still sweeping onwards. My face felt as if a red-hot iron had been laid across it, but I had the use of my limbs, so jumping over the litter of dead and mangled men, I scampered after my regiment and fell in upon the right flank. Old Major Elliot was there, limping along, for his horse had been shot, but none the worse in himself. 
He saw me come up and nodded, but it was too busy a time for words. The brigade was still advancing, but the general rode in front of me with his chin upon his shoulder, looking back at the British position. "'There is no general advance,' said he, "'but I'm not going back.' "'The Duke of Wellington has won a great victory,' cried the aide-de-camp in a solemn voice, and then his feelings getting the better of him, he added, "'if the damn fool would only push on,' which set us all laughing in the flank company. But now anyone could see that the French army was breaking up. The columns and squadrons which had stood so squarely all day were now all ragged at the edges, and where there had been thick fringes of skirmishers in front, there were now a spray of stragglers in the rear. The guard thinned out in front of us as we pushed on, and we found twelve guns looking us in the face, but we were over them in a moment, and I saw our youngest subaltern, next to him who had been killed by the lancer, scribbling great seventy-ones with a lump of chalk upon them, like the schoolboy that he was. It was at that moment that we heard a roar of cheering behind us, and saw the whole British army flood over the crest of the ridge and come pouring down upon the remains of their enemies. The guns, too, came bounding and rattling forward, and our light cavalry, as much as was left of it, kept pace with our brigade upon the right. There was no battle after that. The advance went on without a check, until our army stood lined upon the very ground which the French had held in the morning. Their guns were ours, their foot were a rabble spread over the face of the country, and their gallant cavalry alone was able to preserve some sort of order, and to draw off unbroken from the field. Then at last, just as the night began to gather, our weary and starving men were able to let the Prussians take the job over, and to pile their arms upon the ground that they had won. That was as much as I saw or can tell you about the Battle of Waterloo, except that I ate a two-pound rye loaf for my supper that night, with as much salt meat as they would let me have, and a good pitcher of red wine, until I had to bore a new hole at the end of my belt, and then it fitted me as tight as a hoop to a barrel. After that I lay down in the straw where the rest of the company were sprawling, and in less than a minute I was in a dead sleep. End of chapter 13